Welcome to Murder Minute, your daily dose of true crime. On today's episode, the story of two serial killers and the sick game one made his victims play for their lives. How did they do it? And how did they get away with it for so long? That story up next, but first, some true crime headlines. At a press conference on Monday, investigators in Delphi, Indiana, announced that they would be going in a new direction with their search for the killer of two teenagers along a hiking trail two years ago. 13-year-old Abigail Williams and 14-year-old Liberty German disappeared from the Monon High Bridge Trail in February of 2017. Their bodies were found the next day, nearby where they had been last seen. Police believe that one of the girls was able to snap a picture of her killer and a short audio clip of his voice before she was murdered. Those, along with an updated composite sketch of the man believed to be the killer, were the focus of this most recent press conference. The sketch differed from the original sketch released after the killings, with this one depicting a younger-looking man who investigators believe to be between 18 and 40 years old. Police believe that the person who is responsible for the murders might be hiding in plain sight, and probably has ties to the small Indiana community. Jury selection began this week in the trial of a Massachusetts teenager accused of beheading a classmate. Matthew Borges is accused of killing and mutilating Lee Manuel Valoria Paulino in November of 2016. Both were 15 at the time and sophomores at Lawrence High School. Police believe that Borges murdered Paulino, whose decapitated body was found partially submerged along the banks of the Merrimack River. Borges has allegedly confessed to the crime, but offered no motive for the killing. He is being tried as an adult and faces a first-degree murder charge. It has been three years since a fitness instructor was murdered inside a Texas church, and police have still not been able to identify her killer. 45-year-old Terry Missy Beavers was preparing to lead an early morning fitness boot camp class inside the Creekside Church of Christ in Midlothian when she was stabbed and bludgeoned to death by an unknown assailant. A security camera captured the suspect walking into the church before the murder, dressed in tactical police-style gear. The suspect pried the church doors open with a screwdriver, and in footage released to the public, the suspect can be seen walking around inside the building with an unusual gait. More than 2,000 tips have been called into police, with many identifying people who appear to walk like the masked suspect. Despite all these tips, no suspects have been identified and no arrests have been made. Based on analysis of the surveillance video, police believe the killer is around 5 feet 8 inches tall and walks with their right foot turned out, or did at the time of the murder. A Miami teenager who was infatuated with the 1999 shooting at Columbine High School triggered a manhunt and school closings around Denver when she traveled from Florida to Colorado and purchased a gun just days before the 20th anniversary of the massacre. 18-year-old Saul Pais made the trip from her home in Miami to the Denver suburb and bought a shotgun in Littleton, Colorado. She then took a rideshare to Mount Evans, telling her driver that she wanted to see the snow. Because of her fascination with the school shooting and the timing of her trip, investigators were initially worried that she planned to carry out some sort of attack in the area. A manhunt ensued, and schools in the area were closed while investigators searched for the woman. Her body was discovered near a campground a few days later, dead from an apparently self-inflicted gunshot wound. Authorities now believe that suicide was her plan all along, and that she most likely died a few days before her body was discovered, unaware that authorities were searching for her. 
A trial is underway in Tucson for a woman accused of child abuse and first-degree murder for the death of her young son more than five years ago. A landlord cleaning out an apartment after an eviction found the skeletal remains of three-year-old Roman Barreras, whose mother stands accused of abusing and starving the boy, resulting in his death sometime in late 2013 or early 2014. His mother, Raquel, has pled guilty to four other charges in the case, including child abuse and concealment of a dead body. Her four other children, ranging in age from 4 to 19 years old, have testified that their mother treated their youngest sibling differently, isolating him in a laundry room behind their apartment and starving him to death. The children had been removed from their parents' custody after Roman's birth because his mother tested positive for drug use during her pregnancy. They were returned to their father, Martin Barreras, a year later. The children were not supposed to have contact with their mother because she had not complied with a state-mandated plan to get her children back, but their father allowed her to live in the home anyway. The father has been charged with one count of child abuse, and his trial is scheduled for August. A Georgia woman accused of the starvation murder of her stepdaughter is representing herself at trial and could become the state's only woman on death row if she's convicted. Tiffany Moss and her husband Iman were charged with the death of Iman's daughter, Imani Moss, in 2013, whose burned body was found in a trash can outside their apartment. The 10-year-old girl weighed just 32 pounds at the time of her death, which is the size of a typical three-year-old. Iman Moss pled guilty and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for his part in his daughter's murder. Tiffany Moss is acting as her own attorney during the trial, which is expected to last about three weeks. Gwinnett County Superior Court Judge George Hutchinson urged Moss to get an attorney, but the woman has insisted that she is putting her fate in God's hands. Two court-appointed attorneys are seated in the gallery behind her and are available to answer legal questions for her. Those are your true crime headlines. Coming up after the break, the stories of Robert Hansen and Mikhail Popkov. For True Crime Anytime, download the Murder Minute app on the App Store and follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 8989. Enjoy! Our first story today takes place in Anchorage, Alaska, between 1973 and 1983. Convicted serial killer Robert Hansen lured women into his cabin in Alaska only to set them free in the wilderness for him to hunt. Before we get into that, let's rewind and see how a man could possibly become one of the most twisted serial killers in history. Born in Esterville, Iowa, in 1940, Robert Hansen was the son of Danish immigrants. Growing up wasn't easy, 
as he developed a severe case of acne on top of an already noticeable stammer. He was incredibly shy and outcasted by almost everyone at his school, including the attractive girls who he dreamt of getting revenge on. In 1957, Hansen enlisted in the United States Army Reserve, but only served for one year before he was discharged. Afterwards, he worked as an assistant drill instructor at a police academy in Pocahontas, Iowa. By the time he was 21, Hansen was married to a woman he met in Pocahontas in the summer of 1960. In that same year, he was arrested for burning down a local school bus garage, resulting in a three-year prison sentence, of which he only served 20 months. During his imprisonment, his wife divorced him. It wasn't long until he married a fellow Pocahontas native in 1963 and convinced her to move to Anchorage with him in 1967. Hansen took to flying and even bought his own plane after taking numerous lessons. He gained a reputation for being outdoorsy and hunting all types of animals that wandered the Alaska wilderness. It seemed like Robert Hansen was an upstanding citizen, one that was revered by his community and his family. That was until 1972. In 1972, Hansen was arrested twice and charged with attempted rape and abduction of his housewife and the rape of a prostitute. The housewife escaped, but the prostitute did not. Despite these charges, Hansen received a reduced charge and served less than six months. Five years later, in 1977, he was imprisoned for stealing a chainsaw and subsequently was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. He was prescribed medication, but was never officially ordered to take it. After serving one year in prison, he followed his father's footsteps and opened a bakery. It seemed like he was setting up a new life for himself, far away from the pain he dealt with his whole life. However, petty thefts was not the end of his days as a criminal. This was only the beginning of the heinous acts that Hansen was soon to commit. Hansen's life as a killer began to make its way to the public in 1980, when construction workers found a woman's remains near a Klutna Road. Police were able to determine that she was stabbed to death sometime in 1979, but could not identify the body, labeling her as a Klutna Annie. Soon after, the body of Joanna Messina was uncovered in a gravel pit near Seward, almost 130 miles away from Anchorage. Then, Sherry Morrow, a topless dancer, was found dead by hunters near the Nick River. While the bodies were being discovered at an alarming rate, the authorities were no closer to solving their case. Yet there was a trend forming. Hansen targeted prostitutes and exotic dancers almost exclusively. But how did he manage to lure so many women into his trap? Hansen admitted that he abducted the women by airplane to the wilderness outside of Anchorage. They were forced to act out his fantasies, but if they resisted, he would not tolerate it and would murder them without hesitation. Hansen would not make it easy, but rather made a game of his murders. He would often strip his victims and make them run out into the wilderness like animals, only to stalk them and hunt them with his hunting knife or game rifle. Bringing his victims to the wilderness proved to be too time-consuming for Hansen, so in 1983, he decided to start bringing his victims to his own home. He managed to send his wife and two children out of the country on a European vacation so his fantasies could come to fruition. 
Once they were gone, he began running local ads, seeking women to join him in finding what's around the next bend, over the next hill. Hansen's plan would not work out as well as he thought. On June 13, 1983, a 17-year-old captive managed to escape from Hansen's clutches as he tried to abduct her onto his plane. When she reached authorities, she still had handcuffs dangling from one of her wrists. Her escape put Hansen on the radar for the task force detectives, leaving him no place to hide. It wasn't long before Hansen confessed that between 1973 and 1983, he consistently preyed on women while murdering 17 and raping another 30, who luckily survived. Authorities took Hansen on a flying tour of the wilderness, where he began to point out certain spots where he believed he buried the victims. Over the course of eight months, they recovered 11 bodies. To this day, some remain anonymous and unidentified, while the rest were able to have their identities recovered. Even Hansen was unsure about the names and identities of a portion of his victims. The next year, on February 18, 1984, Hansen pled guilty on four counts of first-degree murder in the cases of Aklutna Annie, Joanna Messina, Sherry Morrow, and Paula Golding. The charges in the other cases were dismissed, but it was no matter, as Hansen was sentenced to a lifetime imprisonment, plus 461 years. On August 21, 2014, Hansen was taken to a hospital in Anchorage, where he was pronounced dead. He was 75 years old and had 431 years left on his additional sentence. Unlike Robert Hansen, little to nothing is known about our next killer, except for the volumes of incredulous acts he is responsible for. Mikhail Popkov, also known as the werewolf and the Wednesday murderer, was born in 1964 in Angarsk, USSR. On the surface, he worked as a policeman before later becoming a security guard. Ironically, he was labeled as a perfect husband and father. Popkov had a trend when it came to the women he lured to their inevitable death. All were between the ages of 16 and 40, with the exception of one male who was also a policeman. The female victims were either prostitutes or young women who were heavily inebriated. Popkov considered these people immoral, justifying his kills. Popkov utilized the fact that he was a policeman to execute his murders. He would often put on his police uniform and linger outside the bars or parties in his police car. When he found an intoxicated woman that he felt he could take advantage of, he would use the power of his uniform and car to gain their trust. Once they felt comfortable with him, he promised a free ride, and sometimes more alcohol, as a means of ensuring that there would be no resistance. His crimes began in 1992 and spanned all the way until 2010. Popkov executed his kills in the towns of Angarsk, Irkutsk, and Vladivostok. All of these were a considerable distance from each other, around 2,423 miles in total. Although he never admitted to it, it seems he meticulously spread out his kills in an effort to conceal what he was up to. Popkov performed his kills using a variety of instruments, such as knives, axes, baseball bats, and screwdrivers. By the time authorities had found the bodies, he had mutilated them in such a grotesque manner that the Russian media labeled him as the werewolf. His second name, the Wednesday Murderer, 
stemmed from his trend of executing his kills during the earlier days of the week. It didn't stop at mutilating the bodies. There was evidence on a vast majority of his victims that Popkov frequently raped them after he had killed them. It seems crazy to think that someone who was killing people at such a rapid rate could possibly get away with it, but it's not like the police had no clues to work off of. The police had been severely criticized multiple times for failing to catch Popkov and ignoring vital evidence. He murdered around 17 of his victims using the same variation of weapons, police uniform, and car tactic. These clues became massive pieces of evidence on January 26, 1998, when Svetlana M., a 15-year-old teenager, luckily escaped a failed attack by Popkov. She told authorities how a police car stopped her and the man had offered her a ride. But when she got into the car, he went off a beaten path and into the woods. There, he forced her to take off all of her clothes and threw her against a tree. The blow to her head caused her to lose consciousness, but she was found alive the next day near the village of Baikalask. It was a miracle she survived, given that she was naked in sub-zero temperatures. Although the evidence Svetlana presented the police with should have been enough for them to suspect one of their own as a killer, they continued their search with complete disregard for her story. For years, the police suspected that the killer was a metal worker, driver, railway employee, heating station engineer, or even a cemetery worker. It wasn't until investigators noticed a very distinct pattern that Popkov was finally on the cusp of being caught. When the crime scenes were investigated, the tracks from a lot of 4x4 were found. This is an off-road vehicle that is used by law enforcement. With this new piece of evidence, the police finally understood that the killer was under their nose the entire time. DNA testing of 3,500 current and former policemen in Irkutsk in 2012 was taken, and they found a 100% match of Popkov's DNA and the DNA found on the victim's bodies, which led to Popkov's arrest. In addition, Popkov was tested for SDDs and was diagnosed with syphilis. One of his victims was found to have that disease as well, further proving that Popkov was the killer and had contracted the disease from his victim. Once he was in custody, he admitted to the killings of 24 victims, but was also suspected of 29 additional killings, if not more. He also admitted that he had contracted his STD from one of his victims, but because it left him impotent, he lost his desire to rape and kill. Popkov was tried on January 2015 and was sentenced to life in prison for 22 murders and two attempted murders. Two years later, he confessed to 59 additional killings, which makes his total victim count higher than those of famous Russian serial killers Andrei Chikatilo and Alexander Pashushkin. On December 10, 2018, he was convicted of 56 further murders, with the three other alleged killings unable to be confirmed. Both of our killers today became infamous for the lengths they went about and the tactics they used to execute their kills. There are plenty more stories like them out there for us to tell. Come back again next time for another Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.